He exists eternally. He is not bound by time or space. He is unchanging. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Yesterday, today, and tomorrow are temporal categories that have to do with our experience. But God simply is. There is no change in him ever. And that's why it's all the more surprising and fascinating to see how God works in our lives and in the history of the world. Because God, in time and in space, as he interacts with his creation and with his creatures and with his people and with his church, God delights to use change and process. And we see that way back in Genesis, the fall and with that mother of the promises, the mother of all promises that, that God will raise up the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. That's a prophecy of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it takes thousands of years of ups and downs and twists and turns and joys and sorrows and pains and God brings his people to the Christ, the coming of the Christ. But there are a lot of bumps along the way. And in our text of this morning, we have just one more of those occasions. As that holy seed of the woman, that, that line of the, the descendants which will lead eventually to the Savior of the world. As it stands here in Genesis 33 in danger, as it so often has been throughout the Old Testament and will be, it stands here in danger of being absolutely exterminated. Jacob lifted up his eyes, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him, a battalion of armed, experienced fighters. We saw yesterday on the news what armed militants, armed fighters can do against defenseless women and children. This is a terrifying situation. And there... The scripture, the Holy Spirit tells us that it was Jacob that lifted up his eyes. Now, he just got a new name just a few verses ago. Last night, he got a new name. Your name isn't Jacob. Jacob is deceiver. Jacob is supplanter. Jacob is the guy who's always trying to get ahead, who is born pulling on his brother's leg to try and take his place. And God said, your name's not Jacob anymore. You're not going to be striving in your own strength. Your, your name is Israel. God prevails. God wins. That's your name. You know, back when God gave Abram a new name, Abram, father, or, or, or um, exalted father, his name was changed to Abraham, which is the father of multitudes, the father of nations. And, and from then on, back there in Genesis chapter 17, when God changes his name, the Holy Spirit uses that name, the new name from then on throughout the scriptures. But that's not the case with Jacob. He's got a new name. But the very next morning, in the very next chapter, it's his old name that's there. Why is that? Well, as we go through the scriptures from this point on, the, the name Jacob, the name Israel are interchanged from time to time. Why is that? Well, in one way, it's because Israel begins more and more as we go through the scriptures to refer to the nation, to, to Jacob as a people, 
And, and the name Jacob refers to him more as a person. So there's a personal versus the national. But I think especially in these early chapters, it's also possible that it brings to light the, the tension between the old Jacob and the new Israel. The man who tries to figure things out himself and the one who submits to the truth that God prevails, that God wins, and that we can only overcome in his blessing. Now there's Esau, he's coming with 400 men. And you know, the lesson, we see it in the scriptures, we see it in history, we see it in our own lives, what you sow, that will you reap. If you have done wrong, if you have sinned against God and against others, and it is not resolved, it will come back to bite you. It will come back to confront you at the most unexpected time, perhaps. But it will not stay hidden. Your sins will find you out. And that's what's happening right here. Jacob ripped off his brother from the birthright. He ripped off his brother from the blessing. He's ripped off his brother two times. His brother was angry and murderous 20 years ago, and it's never been dealt with. That's the worst thing when when you have this conscience which is not clean. You, You fear. You fear that your sin will be discovered. You fear because something has been left unresolved. And and in this situation, we're reminded of way back in the beginning of the history of the world, that that event between two brothers, Cain and Abel, where Cain saw that Abel was blessed by God, and it led him to murder his brother. And we ask ourselves, is this going to happen again? Because it's quite possible. And so Jacob responds. He divides the children up into groups with their Mothers, the two servants, then Leah, and then Rachel. Now, we know the whole story, the whole narrative, the whole history of God working throughout the generations. We know that ordinarily, well, Jacob Jacob would have known this, that ordinarily the oldest one is the one who will carry on the line of promise, the line of the Messiah. He didn't yet know that His oldest children would lose that privilege and it would go down to Judah who would be the one. But he certainly knew the principle that the oldest will continue the holy seed of the Messiah. So who should Jacob have put in the safest position furthest from danger? He should have put his oldest son, Reuben. But he didn't. We see here perhaps why The Holy Spirit uses the name Jacob in the beginning of this chapter because Jacob's not going by God's promises here. His own feelings are trumping God's covenant promises. He loves Rachel. And and Joseph has a very special place in his heart because Joseph is the child of the favorite wife. Jacob's feelings trump God's promises. And before we start criticizing Jacob, our father Jacob, too much, maybe we need to look in the mirror. How often don't we do that? Our, what we feel, our emotional state, we go by that, and we, that trumps God's clear direction in the Word. God says, you shall not be unequally yoked. You shall not court or date or marry uh, someone who is outside of Christ. And, and that's the clear command of Scripture. And we say, yeah, but I, I, I feel 
that this is the right thing for me. It's going to make me happy to disobey God and, and follow my desires. We can multiply the examples. This is what Jacob's doing right now. He comes forward. He's bowing himself to the ground seven times. The number of completeness this is deep humility. He's bowing towards the ground. Now that, that's deep humility at great personal sacrifice. Remember that just a few hours ago, the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ touched his hip and dislocated it. This guy's in pain. And when you're in pain with a dislocated hip, you don't want to be bowing down once, let alone seven times. It shows you how worried Jacob is. He gets through the pain. He humbles himself. And this is beautiful because it shows that it's not just Jacob here. He has some sense of his new name that, that God strives, that God prevails, that God wins. And, and Jacob has no way of fixing this situation by himself. He has no resources to do that. There is something that he needs to undo. He's ripped off Esau for his birthright. He's stolen the blessing by deception. And Jacob has that birthright. Jacob has the promise of blessing. He has the position of the crown prince of the covenant people of God. He's the one in the line of the Messiah. He has every right to stand there as a king and say to Esau, you bow to me because I have the status. I have the birthright. I have the blessing. But he does not stand upon his rights or his status. He humbles himself. And that's, that's instructive, brothers and sisters. If God wins, then we don't need to impose ourselves. We don't need to stand on our rights. The way of the Christ is the way of the cross. The shape of the Christian life is the shape of the cross. We win by losing. We overcome by giving up, giving up on our will and submitting to the sovereign will of God. And so to depend on God's protection and blessing as Jacob surely is doing here doesn't mean arrogance. God blesses Jacob's humble dependence and his humble attempt to win his brother Esau's heart. And look at his courage he goes first. He's arranged his whole family, his wives, his, uh, the servants of his wives and the children, and then he goes ahead of them. He doesn't stay behind being protected by the women and children. He goes ahead. That's courage. You know, if you had 400 armed men, that would fill this building here. 400 armed men. That would, and if you're standing here with your wife and kids facing 400 potentially angry armed men, that's, that's pretty terrifying, especially when you're not armed and you can't, you can't do anything to defend yourself or, or your family. But he goes ahead. He goes forward in faith and with the courage of faith. And, and God does a miracle here. This is a, a miracle that God works because Esau 20 years ago was murderous. He wanted to kill his brother and he meant it. But now he runs to meet Jacob. He embraces him. He fell on his neck and he kissed him. And, and here's Esau he has turned aside from the covenant of God. He's turned aside from the service of the Lord. He's living away from God, away from the covenant, away from the faith. And yet, and yet, by God's grace and mercy and compassion, this unbeliever reminds us of that 
father in the parable of the prodigal son. You remember that father who was looking and, and, and saw his prodigal son while he was yet a long way off and ran to meet him, <clears throat> excuse me, and to embrace him. This is a generosity, which is amazing. He's not a faithful child of the covenant, and yet Esau can put many of us to shame in his openness and his readiness to reconcile and to forgive. And they wept. They wept. These, Esau is a man's man. He's a hunter. He's a, he's a, he's a fighter. And Jacob is a strong man as well. He, he, he moved that rock all by himself from the, the, the mouth of the well when he got to Padan Aram. These are strong, tough men. And they wept. Real men do have emotions, and it's not wise to pretend otherwise. Here are 20 years of broken relationship beginning to heal. If that doesn't move you, what will? Now, Jacob faced the problem. He, he was coming back into the promised land, and he sent messengers to Esau. He faced the problem. He knew that something was undone. It had to be dealt with. He knew the truth that we later on read in Proverbs 18, verse 19. A brother offended is more unyielding than a strong city, and quarreling is like the bars of a castle. So he sent out the messengers. He sent out the presents. He sent out the gifts. He didn't want to live in the land of promise with this hanging over him of what Esau might do. So he faced the problem. And remember what the scriptures teach. Proverbs often speaks about the power of a gift to avert anger. And once again, Jacob is humbling himself to save his family, to save his people. Look at the language he uses here from the verses uh, 4 on to the verses 14. Or, or 15. The language is, I am the servant. Esau, my brother, you are my Lord. Look at verse 5. Esau says, who are these people? He says, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Jacob's not rubbing his blessings and his power and his wealth and his status in Esau's face saying, hey, look, God bless me. Look at my family. Got a way bigger family than you do. Look at all my flocks and herds. I got the blessing. Remember the blessing I stole from you? I got the birthright. Remember the birthright I stole from you? That's not what Jacob's doing. He's humbling himself. He doesn't even mention blessing there in verse 5. He just says, God has graciously given. And then when he does mention the blessing, look there in verse 11, if you have your Bible open. Look there in verse 11. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has, great, has dealt graciously with me. Accept my blessing which is brought to you. I, I stole your blessing, brother. Please, I, I want to give my blessing back to you. I, this is not the way it should have happened. I shouldn't have stolen it. Please take this. Take my blessing. It's for you. You see, I don't need to live by deception. I don't need to grasp after the things that I want or need, even if they're good. Even if they're promised by God, I don't need to gain them in my own strength because I am Israel. And I live by the blessing of God. And I prevail by the victory of God, not of man. And so 
it's important that, that Esau accepts the gift. Because in accepting the gift, it means that he's accepting the apology. He's accepting his brother. Look there in verse 10. If I found favor in your sight, please accept my present from my hand. Accept my, my present. This is a, a word present there in verse 10. It's a word used to describe tribute when a vassal king gives a tribute to a political overlord. It is a word used to describe the worshiper giving a gift to God. It is the inferior giving to the superior. Once again, even in the words he's using, Jacob's putting himself down. He's humbling himself. He says, I've seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God. What's going on here? Why is he saying that about Esau? Well, the God of Israel, the God who prevails, he is in charge. He turns the heart of the king like a watercourse, whatever way he wills. He says, touch not my anointed ones, do my prophets no harm. And when Jacob looks at his brother, who 20 years ago, his face was contorted in murderous rage. And now Jacob looks in his brother's face and he sees kindness and acceptance and forgiveness. And then Jacob knows that God is at work. And it reminds Jacob of the kindness and acceptance of God. And he praises God for it. Now this is a small picture, brothers and sisters, a small picture of the gospel. It's a small picture of our Savior born in the line of Jacob. Our Savior Jesus Christ got his greatest victory in his greatest humiliation Lord of all, he became the servant. He turned away the fierce anger of God, the righteous anger of God against our sin. He saved the people of God from destruction and death. He saved us, his family, and he reconciled us to God. And as we, as we go through the scriptures on the way to the Christ in the New Testament, often the things that happen in the lives of the patriarchs and the believers and the people of Israel are little pictures of the big picture of what God is doing in history in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, now remember, this is our family history. This is our history. This isn't just some, some people in the Middle East thousands of years ago. This is us, our family, our history. We're the people of God. We have been grafted into the Israel of God and here in this chapter, our salvation hangs by a thread, as it so often does in the Old Testament. If Esau had killed Jacob and his whole family, Jesus would never have been born. And all we would be able to expect for eternity is the righteous judgment of God upon our sin. So... What's happening here is of cosmic significance. God prevails and God wins. It's clear that this is not done in Jacob's power. Now, now verse 12, Jacob definitely avoids keeping Esau around. Who, who wants a battalion of 400 fighting men when there are women and children and, and, and servants and flocks Wisely, Jacob says, well, why don't you just head out of here and we'll, we'll, we'll come on our own pace. 
And he says, until I come to my Lord in Seir. See there in the verse, verse 14 at the end. Is Jacob deceiving again? Is he saying, well, I'm going to come to Seir, which would be going down south to the east of the, the Sea of uh, the Dead Sea, southeast of the Dead Sea. Is he lying? Is he cheating? Is he, is he deceiving again? Well, the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible doesn't really say that. We do know that in chapter 35 of Genesis, Esau and Jacob get together. They bury their father Isaac. They seem to be getting along fine. And, and even though the, the Bible describes the movement of the encampment of the patriarchs, it doesn't mean to say they couldn't make little trips between what is recorded. So he certainly could have traveled down to Seir on a journey to visit. We don't know. The Lord doesn't tell us. In verse 17, you may say, but look at the first word of verse 17. It says, Esau returned on his way to Seir, but Jacob journeyed to Sukkoth. So that word, but, being kind of a contrast, maybe the Holy Spirit's telling us that he said he was going to go to Seir, but he went to Sukkoth. Well, that might make sense if you just go off the English translation, but the word that is translated but in verse 17 is a very small one-letter word or conjunction in Hebrew, and it can be translated many, many ways. It can mean and, but, so, or then, or all kinds of other possibilities. If you have the King James Version, you'll notice that the King James Version often says and, and this, and that, and that, and that, because the King James often just translates this little conjunction with and. So we shouldn't put too much weight on the fact that our translation has a but here. It could be an and as well. It doesn't mean that much usually by itself. He goes to Sukkoth and he builds himself a house. Now, this is strange because the patriarchs normally lived in tents. They avoided building long-term structures. What's going on here? Why does Jacob build himself a house? He's on the east side of the Jordan. He's not technically in the promised land. He's on the doorstep of it. What's going on? Why is he building a house? Well, this part of, of, the, of the land, the east side of the Jordan, eventually will be part of the promised land. When the people of Israel come into the, the land, and you remember that uh, Gad and, and Reuben and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they settle on the east side of the Jordan. And they do that because it's a great place for livestock, and they've got a lot of livestock. And so that's a significant piece of information. You look there in Numbers 32, they actually say that. This is a good place for our livestock. And Jacob stops here, most likely, for his livestock. He, he perhaps builds himself something, a little longer-term structure that will last a few years because he's not going to move until he replenishes his herds and his flocks. He's been driving them hard to escape from Laban. Now is a time of resting for the next stage of the journey. Now, he builds booths for his livestock. You see that in verse 17? And those booths, those shelters, the word for booths in Hebrew is Sukkoth, which is why the place is called Sukkoth. And later on, God will tell his people that they need to celebrate a yearly festival called Sukkoth, when they will move out of their houses and live for a few days in temporary structures in tents made of, or in structures made of branches. That feast of booths is mentioned in Leviticus 23. 
It's also the festival of ingathering. It's a, a Thanksgiving, a harvest festival. And the Jews today just finished celebrating it yesterday. The last, from Saturday going back seven days, they've been celebrating the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Sukkot, celebrating the harvest and the abundance, and also remembering the temporariness of life on the way to the promised land. That's one of the lessons of Sukkot. Now, none of this is yet in view when Jacob simply stays here, builds up his flocks, and builds booths for his livestock. The feast will still come in the future, and yet it's not a coincidence, brothers and sisters. You know, the word Sukkoth here in Genesis thirty-three seventeen, for a Jew reading this in the Hebrew, it would be like us reading in the English that Jacob journeyed to Thanksgiving, and he built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Thanksgiving. It, it's, very, it's, a, it's a word which has a lot of power and significance. And in fact, still today, the Jews call Sukkoth the Feast of Jacob. And so this is a time of rest. This is a time of rejoicing in God's provision. This is a time of Thanksgiving. And so verse 18, he came safely to the city of Shechem. You remember what he said back in Bethel after that vision during the night? Genesis 28, verse 21, he says, until I come again to my father's house in peace. If God brings me back, if God gives me what I need, if God blesses my journey and gives me a wife and a family, and he brings me back to my father's house in peace, then God shall be my God. So he's back. He's back safely. The word is connected to the word for peace in the Hebrew. He's back safe and sound. He's back in peace. He didn't go back to Bethel. He didn't go back to his father Isaac there in the south. But he's back in the promised land, back from Padan Aram. His mission is accomplished. He has a wife. He has children. He has the blessing of God. And then verse 19, he buys a piece of land. Now, this is significant, again, because... It's one more little step on the way to the new heavens and the new earth. God says, I will give you a land and a people, and you will be a blessing to the nations. Those are the promises of the Abrahamic covenant. And first, all they had was a cemetery, just a place to bury their dead. And now, even though it's a little property, it's not a great big acreage, it's just a little property, just enough to place your tent on. He has a property that he owns, a tiny piece of the inheritance, a small step forward to the fullness of the fulfillment of God's promises. And so we come to the end of the chapter. And you look at verse 18 and look at the end of verse 18. See that phrase there? He camped before the city. And if you know what the next chapter talks about, you know that this is rather ominous. He camped before the city. Shechem is a city of godless pagans worshiping other gods. And he camps right up against it. Now, you remember what happened the last time one of the patriarchs camped real close to a city? That was Lot. You know what happened to Lot? This is a little dark cloud on the horizon here, which next chapter we're going to see what comes from it. This may not work out well. This will not work out well. And you see, once again, this mix of Jacob and Israel, this mix of, of faith and foolishness. 
Dinah right now, as they arrive, is maybe 8 to 10 years old. So she's going to grow up in her teen years right under the influence of a godless, pagan, worldly city. And we're going to see what comes from that. That maybe wasn't a good idea of Jacob to do that. He was supposed to stay separate from the peoples of the land. But mixed with mistakes and, and maybe lack of wisdom, there was also great faith, brothers and sisters. Look at verse 20. There he erected an altar. He puts down stakes, gets a piece of land, and he makes sure he has a place to worship. And he calls it El, Elohei Israel, God, the God of Israel. Remember back there in Bethel, chapter 28, he was by himself. He was in the dark, no wife, no children, no worldly possessions. And he says, if God goes with me, if God blesses me, if God is granting me the things that I need and gives success on my mission here, and he brings me back to the promised land in peace, then God shall be my God. And here he confesses that with the name he gives to the altar. God, the God of Israel. That's me, Jacob, with my new name. He acknowledges God's covenant blessing. He acknowledges God's protection. He acknowledges God's provision. He embraces the meaning of his new name. God prevails. God wins. He's been released from bondage to Laban. He's been reconciled to Esau. He's no longer living with stolen blessings by his own craftiness, but he's waiting on the Lord for his blessings. And God has provided God has brought him to his home. He's brought him back home in peace. Now, brothers and sisters, as we this morning in the year 2023, we sit here in a different time, place, culture, situation than our father Jacob in our chapter. What do we see in this chapter? This is all part of the great sweep of the history of redemption, which begins in Genesis 3.15 and, and moves towards the coming of the Christ, both his first and his second. And this chapter is also a picture of our life. We are on our way home. And as we go traveling to the promised land, we encounter great dangers and, and problems. And sometimes they are because of our own sins. We reap what we have sown. And we deal with broken relationships and, and problems which are intractable. We, we can't figure out how to, how to solve them because they're only solvable by the sovereign acting of God in Christ. And as we travel, brothers and sisters, to the new heavens and the new earth, we need to remember that we are living in booths, in tabernacles, in Sukkot. This building is going to burn one day. Your house is going to burn, and all of your toys are going to burn one day. And so the Bible instructs us and reminds us, the Holy Spirit reminds us as we look at Jacob, our father, here in chapter 33, he reminds us to hold on to the things of this world lightly. We're having Thanksgiving this weekend. There's a lot to say thank you, God, for. But we're on the way to something so much greater and more glorious. We're not there yet, and yet we already begin to taste it. We begin to taste heaven. We enjoy abundance, thanksgiving, the fruit of the land, the fruit of our labor, and these things are good, and we worship God for them. 
We enjoy them. We rejoice in them. We praise God for them. We give thanks to God for them. We experience a little taste, a foretaste of the reconciliation and the rest which Christ is bringing towards us in all its perfect fullness. And so as we celebrate Thanksgiving, brothers and sisters, this weekend, we, we look back. We say, thank you, Lord. But we also look forward. We look forward, and the Spirit reminds us, you haven't seen anything yet. The greatest joys and blessings of this life cannot compare to the weight of glory that Christ is preparing for you as he steers you towards home in the new heavens and the new earth. Because in Christ, God is pleased to reconcile to himself all things, making peace by the blood of his cross, bringing us back to himself in peace, back to the Father, back home, back to a world where there are no tears, for he has wiped them from our eyes, where there is no cancer and no pain and no suffering and no brokenness and no deception and no betrayal and no disappointment and no hurt and no fear and anxiety and no depression, but only joy and love, righteousness. The world is covered with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's where he's bringing us. And as we journey every day, every week closer to the promised land, new heavens and a new earth, on the way, as we're about to sing, on the way the righteous many troubles may endure, but the Lord will free him from them all. Israel, God prevails, God wins. His help is ever sure. The Lord redeems the life of those who serve and honor him. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who take refuge in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is only reconciliation and rest. Amen.